Appreciate that. Now, lots of families are complicated, messy, not straightforward. Uh, my own family is a great example of this. Um, due to various uh, separations of people, divorces at different levels of the family, um, people who've uh, died and remarriages and all this kind of stuff, my kids have potentially nine people they can call grandparents. Uh, it kind of works out okay for them at Christmas, um, but we have a very complicated family with uh, different wings of in-laws and uh, different parents with different spouses and all this kind of stuff over there. Uh, it, very complicated. Another complicating factor in our family was um, my relationship with my father. My parents separated when I was only three years old, and I didn't know my father for 37 years, but then we reconnected after that, which was a great blessing. Uh, he died a couple of years ago, and um, we found out about two weeks after he died something that none of us knew, which is... I also have another sister. So I met her for the first time last year as well. Uh, and there's more stories I could tell just about, as I say, our, our complicated family. And um, we sometimes joke, if you wanted to do our family tree, you'd need to work in four-dimensional space to kind of draw it out. It's uh, all over the shop. The story of Ruth is the story of a messy family, a really messy family but a family that God worked through in some amazing ways. I just want to give a very, very little recap of the book so far. Ruth's a beautifully structured book, uh, four chapters, and each chapter really is a standalone moment. Uh, and each, you'll notice each chapter, if you look at it, starts with a sending out and ends with a coming back. It's got this beautiful rhythm to it, sending out and a coming back. It's also a book in two halves. Uh, the first half, where you have this question of what will happen to this family of Elimelech. Um, will they be able to survive and thrive, uh, given particularly their decision to walk out on God uh, when there was a famine in the land? And the second half of the book, which is what will happen between Ruth and Boaz. So in, in chapter one, you might remember, uh, Elimelech and his family left the land of Israel when there was a famine. And I think there was actually a bit of a faceless act. Lots of other people stayed. The famine was there because of the sins of the people. And it was a bit like when the going gets tough, Elimelech takes his family and leaves. And they went to Moab. Moab is one of, it, it's the arch, arch enemy of Israel, historically. And they intermarried with Moabite women. Uh, and if you're reading this with kind of your Old Testament glasses on, you're going, whoa, these are all things you should not do. But they did them all. Uh, of course, we know that the, the family, uh, the men all died, and you have uh, Naomi with her now widowed daughter, widow Naomi with her widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth, heading back. And the big question is, how will they survive? How will they live? Um, the beautiful thing is, they meet, uh, they meet Boaz, and Ruth finds favour uh, in Boaz's sight. She goes and gleans in the field, and Boaz just loads her up with more food than she could possibly want. They had expected they'd be living a subsistence kind of life, hand to mouth, you know, gather enough grain uh, just to grind out some meal at the end of the day and bake a little loaf and then go and do it again. But no, Boaz showers them with more food than they could possibly need and takes care of 
uh, Ruth and through Ruth, Naomi. And you think, well, the story could end there. That's where chapter two ends. But then Naomi hatches this plot, which is, Ruth, I, I think I should link you up with Boaz. Uh, and so Ruth goes, as you would have heard in chapter three, meets Boaz on the threshing room floor, and basically offers herself to him in marriage. Says, if you would like, uh, I will be your wife. Boaz thinks, actually, you're a good woman. Everything I've heard about your faithfulness to your mother-in-law, Naomi, has been remarkable. Uh, you're a woman of integrity, you're a hard worker. Um, I'll do this, let's get married. But oh, there's a fly in the ointment, there's a problem. There's a system, you see, that the people of Israel used at the time. We give it the name a Leverite marriage. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And what it was was this, was if a man died and uh, he left a widow but no children, then th there was a problem. The problem was the family name would not be carried down the generations. Okay, so like uh, still in Western culture, it's often the male name that carries down from father to son to son and so on. But if the man dies and leaves no son, no children, then how will the name be carried on? They'll be cut off. They'll be forgotten among the people. So they had this system which was the brother of the man would then marry the widow and the firstborn son to the brother would not take the brother's name but would take the dead man's name. And that way... Uh, the kind of, it sounds a bit strange to us, but the, the kind of the gene pool would be close, but the name would be preserved. Uh, and now this seems to have expanded when you get to the time of the judges, when the book of Ruth is written. And it's not just the brother who will do this, but it seems like a wider circle of people in the family, maybe cousins and distant relatives. And they actually have the first, as it were, um, right to marry a widow. Again, there's a very, very different culture to ours, but this is how it worked. So Boaz says, yes, uh, Ruth, I'd be happy to marry you, but it turns out there's another relative, a nearer redeemer. And he actually, if he wants to marry you and take on the responsibility of um, having a child to, uh, to Marlon, who's deceased, to carry on the name of Elimelech, he actually has the right to do that. So I need to allow him that opportunity uh, rather than just say, I'll do it myself. Okay? Again, very, very different culture. But that's the system. So we end chapter three going, oh, you know, this is a bit of a kind of a rom-com. You know, they've fallen in love, but there's another guy. Who's going who's gonna to get the girl? Uh, and that is where we pick up the start of chapter four. So what we have in chapter four, uh, in verse one to four, is a meeting in the town gate. The town gate was where serious business was transacted. So the elders often sit in the town gate, uh, and it's kind of like a, a wider area, that's, it's not just a gate, but a kind of an entryway to the city. And that, that means it's a very public place. It's not a back alley, it's not in someone's kind of um, room. It's, the, it's an open space and everyone who comes in and out of the city sees people at the town gate doing business. And so Boaz goes to the town gate and draws together some elders and sits there and it happens in God's providence, that this other guy who's never named, this other redeemer walks through and Boaz says, come, uh, I need to talk to you about some business. So the man comes. And uh, what he does is he actually, Boaz tells this man, there's actually a, a parcel of land involved. We haven't heard about this before in the story, but here it is. It turns out that Elimelech, uh, who left, had some land 
and this land can now be redeemed by someone in his family, taken up um, and used for their own purposes. And Boaz offers the man this land. He says, you have the right to redeem it. Um, if you don't, that's, uh, let me know because I will. But I want to do this right. It's, it's your choice first. And the guy says, well, that sounds pretty good to me. I'll do it. Um, you know, it's another field or whatever it is. I can plant crops. Uh, I can um, harvest them. I can get a return on that. This is a good move for me. I'll take it. Verses 5 to 6, Boaz then kind of almost introduces the fine print of the contract. Just so you know, just so you know, the land comes with the widow of the son of Elimelech. Uh, and she needs Ruth for someone to raise up a child for her uh, in the name of her husband and father-in-law. Now at this, the uh, Redeemer says, ah, in that case... I think I won't do it because he has other interests. He might have his own family to support and his own concerns. He says, if I have to raise up a son who won't be my son, who won't actually carry my name forward and be part of my family but part of Elimelech's family, and I, that, that makes the deal um, less the deal I want. And so he says no, he's not going to do it, which for our purposes or for us on kind of Boaz's side is yes, he's not going to do it. Boaz will get to marry Ruth. The, tr the deal has been done, the business has been conducted, this is where we've ended up. Now you might read this and think, is this all a bit shifty? You know, for starters, it is a very, very different culture to ours. And what we must do, of course, is just suspend judgment and say, uh, it's not that they were dodgy in the way they ran their relationships, but just realise the culture's different. There is no sense in any part of the book of Ruth that anyone is doing anything inappropriate. This is just the way the culture runs and they're just going through the processes of this culture. But you might say, what about Boaz not disclosing from the beginning that Ruth came with this parcel of land? That seems a bit dodgy. But actually, again, as you read through, the book is at pains to tell us that everything has been done above board, over and over. You know, verse 1, uh, Boaz uh, goes up to the gate. That's where he's going to transact his business. Um, Boaz... Call, calls the ten men, verse 2, the elders of the city to come so that it's all witnessed well. Boaz says, here's what I like to do, buy it in the presence of the elders. This is all a clean kind of piece of business. Same with verse 9, verse 10, you are witnesses to this day. Um, I've got uh, the land that belonged to um, uh, Elimelech and Marlon and Killian, the Ruth, the Moabites, it's all. So I think that what the story is telling us is over and over again, it's all been done properly. It's actually at pains to do it properly. So we just have to say, if we think it sounds a bit strange, please hear what the scripture is saying to us. This was all transacted cleanly and beautifully and uh, above board and just as it should be. Best practice. It's actually, just as a little aside, this is a good lesson for us actually. As God's people, we need to be people who do things to the best standard, the highest practice, you know? Uh, when you're dealing with, say, the church's budgets and money, you've got to have every confidence that it's not just the bare minimum that's done, but the highest ethical standard, okay? There's no dodgy business. There's no back room. Everything's open and clearly done. We do that really well. Same with government regulations and you know, working with children's checks and whatever compliance, whatever we're meant to do, we should be standout citizens. We should be standout citizens in these matters. 
We should be people who are completely reliable in all that we transact in our business with others. Uh, and it's our personal lives too, right? Not just the church, but our personal lives. We should be people of utmost integrity. Boaz is a great model for us in this. Our lives should be open to scrutiny on these kinds of matters. We don't have a kind of don't ask, don't tell thing going on. But I should be able to open to you my bank account, my tax records, uh, my dealings with other people and show you everything I'm doing and it should be clean all the way through. Now, none of us is perfect, but what we really want to do is be people who strive to have excellently high standards of morality, behaviour, interactions with others that we're beyond reproach. Now, we have the forgiveness of Christ for when we fail, but we don't drop the bar. We seek to really be exemplary in all those kinds of dealings, not secretive, but open. Boaz is a great model for us here. Anyway, back to the story. So we're really excited because Boaz and Ruth can get married. And it seems that some of the people around them are also really excited and start wishing praise upon them. So we see in verse 11 uh, and verse, sorry, second half of verse 11 into verse 12, we hear this. Uh, the people who were at the gate, the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, which is the land of kind of Bethlehem, uh, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. It sounds like, may good things happen to you, good things, great things. And that's really good, except if you know a bit about the references they're making here, Rachel, Leah, um, Tamar, Judah, you might just have this little alarm bell going off. Wait a minute, are they actually wishing them good? Or are they actually wishing them not so good? Uh, imagine you're getting, you, you announce your engagement. Okay, imagine you say, I'm about to get married. And people come up to you and they're congratulating you, oh, that's so fantastic, we're so pleased to you. Uh, and then they start uh, wishing you a marriage that's that, that com is compared to someone else, you know? What you'd like to hear is something like this. You'd like to hear, oh, I'm so happy to hear that you're getting married. I hope it's like Wills and Kate, you know? I, I just I hope it's that kind of fairy tale romance. And you say, oh, that's so sweet, fantastic. I also hope that, you know, we inherit their trillions of dollars and become it. You know, that's a really nice thing to say. What if someone said, what if you said, oh, we're getting married, and people said, oh, that's great, that's wonderful. I really hope that your wedding is like Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphreys. Now, do you know who they are? Do you know who they are? Do you know what, why? What if someone said that to you? I, I hope it's like that. Well, uh, Kim Kardashian is um, someone who, as far as I can tell, is just famous for being famous. Okay? I don't actually know what she does, but uh, she's a, an American, a kind of um, beautiful woman, but um, uh, really just famous for being famous, and in fact, probably famous for being infamous. Uh, one thing she's really well known for is the leak of a sex tape that was made with a boyfriend while she was finalising her first divorce. May your marriage be like Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphreys. Chris Humphreys is a US professional basketball player and it turns out that 
Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphreys did get married in 2011 to massive media hype because Americans love celebrities and they love basketball and this was a great story. So they got married and it lasted 72 days before Chris Kardashian, or one of them, filed, uh, sorry, Kim Kardashian filed for divorce. So here you have someone who's kind of not got a great record to start with, a marriage that ended in 72 days. And imagine if people came up to you and said, may your marriage be like Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphreys. You'd go, yeah, thanks so much for that. That's really encouraging. But this is what people are saying. They're saying, they say to Boaz, may your marriage, may this woman be to you like Rachel and Leah. Now hang on a sec. For starters, that's like two women? Yes, that's right, because Rachel and Leah were the wives of Jacob. So you know in the Old Testament we have Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Jacob had Rachel and Leah and he didn't really like Leah to start with. He wanted to marry Rachel but he got tricked into marrying Leah uh, by Leah's uh, and Rachel's father and then he married Rachel as well and this was not a happy arrangement as perhaps you can imagine. And if you read through Genesis 29 and 30 you find that this was actually a bitter feud that Rachel and Leah had. And they kind of competed for their husband's affection through their children. And they'd brag about who had more children through their husband. They gave Jacob their own slave women that he might have children with the slave women that they could count as their own. And the names of the children are all kind of names like, Ha, huh, a son. You know, see, God likes me. Uh, it's a bitter and ugly thing that gave rise, as it was, to the children of Rachel and Leah. Uh, so you think, yeah, I'm not sure I really want that comparison. Turns out, of course, that the, the 12 tribes of Israel are the children of Rachel and Leah and their two slave women. But it's a messy story. Congratulations, you're getting married. May it be like Rachel and Leah. Huh. Okay, something to look forward to. Even worse, verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, Who's, who are these people? Judah, as it turns out, was Leah's fourth child. So we've just had Rachel and Leah. Leah's fourth child was Judah. And um, Judah's wife uh, was the... Sorry. Judah's daughter-in-law was Tamar. Okay, so here's Judah. Judah's daughter-in-law was Tamar. And Tamar's widowed. So she's on her own. Genesis 38, if you want to read this lovely story. So Tamar covers her face so she can't be seen, tricks her father-in-law into thinking that she's a prostitute. Well done. He goes for it and sleeps with her. She gets pregnant from this. And people report to Judah, your daughter-in-law has been playing the whore. She's pregnant and he says, oh, this is absolutely outrageous. And he calls for her to be burnt. And she says, yes, okay, that's fine, but um, I kept these things from the man who got me pregnant. Oh, by the way, they're yours. And he goes, ah, I see. Okay. They have twin boys as a result of this, Perez and Zera. You're getting married. Great. May it be like... The, may the child that comes be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. You know, may your marriage be reminiscent of a marriage of 
A father sleeping with his daughter-in-law who he thought was a prostitute and then deciding to kill her. Congratulations. Why are people saying this? Why are people saying this to Boaz? Why not pick Wills and Kate or someone else who was appropriate at the time? It's strange, isn't it? But we get to this end of the book and we feel like Boaz and Ruth are together. Fantastic. Why are people saying, may your marriage be like Rachel and Leah and, and, and uh, Tamar? Well, here's the answer, I think. And it's, a, it's actually a beautiful answer. The answer is because God works through mess. God does amazing things through mess. God brings beautiful things out of horrendous situations. That's what God does. And remember, Ruth is a Moabitess. She is a woman who comes from Israel's arch enemy. They were not meant to marry Moabite women. She's come back as a widow. Uh, She's come back carrying the shame of a family who walked out of Israel. But you know what? God blesses mess. God works through brokenness. God brings amazing blessings, even through all kinds of family yuck and situations that are far less than ideal. So what the people are saying is not we're pretending to Boaz and Ruth. Oh, you're both kind of um, such lovely people and your circumstances are so perfect, of course it's going to go well. What they're saying is, boy, you guys have come together on the back of a whole lot of mess. But may God bless the mess, just like he blessed the children of Rachel and Leah. May God bless the mess like he blessed the children of Tamar and Judah. May God bless this mess. They're being honest about the mess, but remembering and claiming the love and the blessing of God in the midst of mess. And isn't that a good story? It's actually the Christian story. The Christian story is not, God loves you because you're so great. It's not, oh, you're just such an ideal person or an ideal family, an ideal couple. Of course God will bless you. That's the Christian story. You've got everything. That's not the Christian story. The Christian story is, despite your mess, despite your sinfulness, despite your rejection of God, despite the foolish things you've done, despite the stupidity, despite all the, the rubbish you've inherited from other people, despite all of that, God loves you. And God will have you in his family. And God will bless you. That's a great message, isn't it? That's a great message. That's the message of the Christian faith. Bring all your rubbish. God loves you. And God will bless you and give you eternal hope for being with him. Not because you've got it all together. Not because you're squeaky clean and perfect. But because he's gracious. And he does good things. Even for people who've come from great mess. Think about Ruth's experience in all this. It's quite remarkable. Ruth was not someone who was just a little way out of the circle, the sphere of God's love and influence through his people Israel. She was a long way off. In fact, the contrast between Boaz and Ruth is massive. Boaz is a man of standing. He's in Bethlehem, so we know this is the city of David and ultimately the city of Jesus. Uh, He's a landowner. He's well regarded. Um, He presumably has a significant amount of authority uh, given his wealth. Ruth 
is the widow of a sinful man. She's from a foreign nation. She's come from about as far away as you could come. She's nothing compared to Boaz. Her hope was just to get in the door, just to be allowed to glean. Let's just get back, chapter 2, into Israel and maybe we can just pick up the, the, the grain from the edge of the field and have enough to get by day to day. But God will have none of that. God does not say to people, you can be part of my family but just on the outside. You can join my household but you have to sit far away from everyone else and you can only have small crumbs while the rest of us, the, the core family, while we enjoy each other's love and fellowship. God doesn't do that. God says, come in. No, no, don't just come in at the back. Don't just come in. No, come in. No, no, no. Don't just sit there and wait for everyone else to be served first. Come in. Come right in. Sit at the top table. Be right next to me. You're with me. As far away as you might have been, your hope is not just a squeak in the door. Your hope is that you will be with Christ at the top table, together, intimately, forever. It's quite interesting um, when I think about my own progress into the Christian faith. I was not a believer till I was 19, and I had a lot of mess in my life. Not just the mess of my family, but my own stupidity, my own sinfulness, my own uh, stuff that had really left me in, in lots of messy places. And when I became a Christian, for a long time, I thought, okay, God has accepted me, but it's kind of on a technicality. That is, Jesus died on the cross for my sin, Therefore, God's kind of obliged to let me in, so he kind of has to. Uh, and what he'll probably do is just let me in, and I can just sort of hang around the back. Uh, and he says, well, yes, you have to be here because Jesus died on the cross for your sin, so I guess if you've accepted that, you're in, okay. But you're not really part... It took me a long time to realize that's not what God was doing. God was saying, no, 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 no. You're my precious son. Come all the way. Sit next to me. Share my cup. Share my meal. I want you right by my side. You're not, you're not one of the kind of you know, associate members of my church. You are my precious son in my family, and I love having you right here, right next to me. It took me a long time to come to that. But this is what we have as well with Ruth, isn't it? Uh, Ruth has been brought right to the center of the people of God, right in the middle. She's going to marry Boaz, brought in and then from there she'll be part of the flourishing of God's people and what God's doing verses 13 through to 17 we learn that uh, Boaz and Ruth do get married and they do have a child and this child is of course uh, not only a great blessing and a joy to them, but to Naomi, bitter Naomi. You know, even her name, she wanted to change to Mara. Call me bitterness. Uh, bitter Naomi even has good things restored to her. A child who will carry on the name of her husband Elimelech. A hope to, to look at her family into the future. Even she's been brought in. But it turns out, not just as a blessing for this family, but as you pan back, you pull back and you look at the big story of the Bible, whoa, Something else is going on here. We've been looking at this story of this little family. You know, just a few people. Uh, just seems like an interesting little sort of um, snapshot of what God does in, in one little family. But you realize, wait a minute. This is part of a bigger story. Because it ends, we realize at the end, that the child 
is Obed. And you think, well, who's Obed? Well, Obed is the father of Jesse. Well, that's fine. Who's Jesse? Jesse is the father of David. David is the greatest king of Israel. David becomes King David. You know, he slays Goliath. He becomes king of Israel. The greatest king of Israel is going to be this grandchild, great-grandchild of Ruth and Boaz. God's not just working in this family. Through this family, God's working out his purposes for human history, for his people. You see, Ruth and Naomi have not just been given security, not just been brought into a nice, happy household. Ruth and Naomi have been folded into the royal line of Israel. God's not just working in them. God is unfolding salvation history. Verse 18 of chapter 4. These are the generations of Perez. Oh, Perez, he was that guy who was the offspring of Tamar and Judah, that, that child of the woman who pretended to be a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law. Well, the line of Perez is Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Perez is actually one of Boaz's ancestors. God has brought good out of that mess. This great man, Boaz, has come from that mess. But Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now, do you know something? This last little few verses of Ruth are the first parts of the Old Testament to be quoted in the New Testament. Uh, this, this last little bit of Ruth is the, first, is the first time we see the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament. It's these verses. And where is it? Well, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew's Gospel chapter 1. And I'm going to do something that's rarely done in churches. And I've practiced this, so I hope you appreciate the work I've put in. I'm going to read to you the genealogy of Matthew, that Matthew gives, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. So I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through to 21, and I want you to just prick up your ears and listen to the names that are in this list. Because the first thing we're meant to do when we open our New Testament, and we turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we start with Matthew, the first thing we're meant to do is actually have our minds taken back to Ruth chapter 4. And here's what it says. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Minadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, Interesting. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. There's Ruth in Matthew chapter 1. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azok. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathen. And Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they'd come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a man, uh, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This genealogy of Jesus actually highlights something really strongly that Jesus' people have a lot of sins they need to be saved from. He'll be called Jesus. The name Jesus means God saves, and he's called Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Uh, what kinds of sins? Well, they are listed in that genealogy. Verse 3, Judah and Perez, we have talked about that. They need saving from their sins. Boaz's mother, Rahab, may well be the prostitute of the book of Joshua, who we meet in chapter 2 and chapter 6. Rahab the prostitute, well, she's going to need saving from her sins. Uh, verse 6, well, David's the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You know, David slept with Bathsheba and killed off Uriah. David's going to need forgiveness from his sins. Verse 10, Manasseh. Manasseh is one of the worst sinners, the worst kings in the history of Israel. The high point of people like David and Hezekiah, the low point people like Manasseh. Manasseh is going to need forgiveness for his sins. The deportation to Babylon, the whole nation sinned, the whole nation rejected God. And so God sent the Assyrians and the Babylonians in to purge the land and they were taken away. All of Israel is going to need forgiveness for their sins. And you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, to save the family of Elimelech from all the mess that happened when they walked out on Israel, from marrying Moabite wives and all that kind of stuff. Jesus will save them from their sins. You see, the book of Ruth ultimately, like the whole of the Old Testament, like the whole of the Bible, the book of Ruth points you to Jesus. It points us to Jesus in knowing we need to be saved from our sins. But the book of Ruth does it so beautifully in saying, well, actually, one of the descendants of Ruth was the Saviour. He restores and saves sinners. He heals people whose lives are messed up by sin and brokenness. He is the answer, really, ultimately, 
that Ruth needed. She didn't really just need to marry Boaz. She needed a saviour. And Jesus is the one that the whole story points to. Jesus saves Ruth. Jesus saves Naomi. Jesus saves people like us. Your life might not be as messy as uh, Ruth's was. Might not have that kind of messy background to it. Uh, Yours might not be like Tamar and Judah or Jacob and Rachel and Leah. You might not have all that sinful mess. Yours might not even be like mine with the kind of four-dimensional family. But you know that there's mess in your life. I don't know what it is, but you know there's mess in your life. And you know some part of that mess is caused by your own sinfulness, your own failure to embrace God's ways, your own rejection of his will for you, your own stubborn rebellion. But you know what? His name is Jesus, and he saves us from our sins. He's the answer to the book of Ruth, and he's the answer to our lives as well. His name is Jesus, and he saves us from our sins. That's the good news of the Christian message. Not that you're perfect and beautiful, and God loves you because you're so wonderful, but God loves you so much, he sent Jesus to save you from your sins. Not just to be on the fringes, not just to sit in the back chairs and be tolerated, but to be welcomed into the heart of the family, to be as close as possible, right in the middle of it, to be one of his precious children who belongs to him and who he loves to have close and will be close to forever. You have a week of mission coming up, a month of mission, beg your pardon. What a great message to take to the world. What a great message. The message of the gospel, the message of the church, the message of the Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Uh, We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus who saves us from our sins. We thank you that there was a saviour for Ruth and for Boaz, for Naomi, for Judah and Tamar and Rachel and Leah and Jacob, for David and Bathsheba, for the prostitute Rahab, for the whole generation deported to Babylon and for us and for those who we'll share the gospel with in the weeks and months ahead. We thank you so much for giving us this Saviour, this Lord, Jesus, who saves us from our sins. May we live in the light of your grace and your love with his name on our lips, now and always. Amen.